Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BF108, The Media and Decadence, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 190, March 10, 1989. Our subject now is the press or the media. And of course, in this, Otto has uh, considerable background, having been a newspaper reporter, having served uh, in an editorial capacity, and having had years of association with the media. Uh, my limited experience, apart from the publishing of the Calcedon Report, was that when I was in high school, I... Uh, covered sports for the weekly paper and uh, got paid for it uh, pretty well for those days. The media, of course, is very, very important in our day. It has a, a tremendous influence through the press, through television, radio, uh, magazines and other publications and the press champions itself as the great uh, citadel of freedom it was very interesting some years ago to read a professor uh, describing his visit to Italy and recognizing that it was public education that made Mussolini possible because only when you could reach the mind of everyone through a state-controlled system could you begin to indoctrinate them into a statist way of life. And of course, all modern statism has depended on public education, on a media that will give forth a kind of uh, generalized humanism so that the media together with education, has served to revolutionize the world in the 20th century. And instead of being a citadel of freedom, which it can be, it has too often been an instrument in the hands of tyranny. Otto, do you want to make some kind of statement now to develop your position on the subject? Well, I agree with what you said, but... I wouldn't limit it to the 20th century. The Reformation really was accomplished by creating the press in the modern sense. Uh, it was the Christian community that created the press. And Calvin and Geneva, and for that matter Luther and the others, were great writers and polemicists and lots of publications, and they, with this new instrument, reached the minds of millions of people. And the press, as you say, has worked both for liberty and for tyranny because the press in the hands of the Soviets, for instance, is an instrument of intellectual tyranny. And the journalists throughout all these centuries have played a dual role. They have uh, undermined governments and traditions and values and Christianity on one hand, on the other hand, they have expressed 
the values of freedom and liberty and individuality and so forth. And then when the pressure comes on, they succumb to greater power. I can't help but count the number of newspapers they used to have in Havana under Batista. There was at least a dozen. Now there is, I think, one, and it prints whatever Castro wants, and Castro says, of course, we didn't have a revolution in order to print anything against the revolution. Well, it is interesting that the press has always boasted of its role in human freedom and as a champion of freedom, but only on rare occasions has it shown much courage. Very little. Yes. My opinion of journalists in terms of courage is not high, and I've had a lot of, uh, some of my best friends are journalists, but they crawl before the city desk, and they are very careful about people of power and influence. Nothing was said to any great extent against Mr. Roosevelt by the reporters. We've always had, in, in recent years, recent generations, we've had conservative editorial writers who kind of uh, calmed the waters for the business people. And we've had, now we have uh, conservative columnists, but we have never had, in recent years, conservative reporters. For the last 25 or 30 years, the reporters have all been Democrats, and in fact the press is almost an instrument of the Democratic Party. I think one of the most uh, distressing examples of the subservience of the press was in the instance of Ben Bradley of Washington Post and President Kennedy. In his book about Kennedy, he admits that he suppressed news, that he worked to please Kennedy, and uh, it's a very sad book to read. He was proud of it. He was yes, proud of being a uh, proud of being a confidant of the president. Yes. And this is a lure, uh, an, att an attraction that power has for a great many people, just to be close to the seat of power is such a wonderful and historic opportunity that consciences disappear. The evolution of the press since World War II here has been a, a matter of almost of astonishment to me. As you know, before World War II, most of the journalists worked their way up. And there is a value in working your way yes. up because you learn the world from the bottom. And the world from the bottom is not the same as the world from the top. Uh, you learn some things about people that are very essential to know if you're an observer of human behavior. We didn't have press releases. No, not even the president had a press release. Uh, somebody would, who would call in with a story about somebody else would immediately be checked out. You'd check him out first because you'd want to know what his motive was in reporting this on somebody else something like a cop. When you call the police and report a crime, the first thing you want to know is your name and your address because they want to know who's calling. Mm -hmm. And we felt the same way. Then we would go to the individual that was the subject of the information to find out what their defense was or what the situation was. And by interviewing and by on-the-spot checking, we would put together a story. If uh, I, I was amazed in New York in later years to discover that uh, stories 
against some of my PR clients, some of my corporations that I represented then, were filed by the New York Times without ever giving the company a chance to know that the charge was being made or the opportunity to respond to it, as though a charge alone was sufficient. And I remember that covering crime, we used to keep secret, or out of the article, the way in which a burglar got into a place, because we didn't want to give burglary instructions to the general public. Uh, we didn't explain in explicit detail the uh, terrible nature of sex crimes. And now, of course, whole books are written about the murders of such as Ted Bundy in explicit detail. We were well aware in those days of the imitation factor. If you printed about a crime, if you featured a crime, there would be a wave of such crimes. But we felt a certain sense of responsibility to the society in which we lived, which apparently is lacking now in the modern journalist. Yes, uh, shortly after Reagan entered the White House, he put into the Federal Register a regulation that would have meant the radical control of the churches and of Christian schools. It was really a regulation that led to a dictatorship over them. And a protest ensued, and as a result of the protest, the IRS, which was to handle the control, received more mail than they had ever before received in their history, which posed a problem for them because they have to answer every letter by law. Oh, I didn't know Even that. Even with a form letter. <laughs> so it's a good way to bug them, but of course they hope they might remember you. <laughs> at any rate, the result was a week long of hearings. And on the first morning, the IRS testified, and through the rest of the week, four of the five days till nine o'clock at night, a number of religious leaders, Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, appeared to testify against the regulation. And uh, the volume of those uh, hearings is still available, I believe from uh, a private press put out by a friend of Calcedon. The interesting thing to me was that the press appeared for the first morning when the IRS testified, and thereafter they came only to receive the IRS handout about the hearings. Only one publication made any investigative reporting of the subject of a story, and that was the Wall Street Journal. That's very interesting because it illustrates the growing division between the journalists and the people of the United States. I think yes. it began with the fact that the publishers began to hire, editors began to hire graduates from the universities, schools of journalism, and now uh, majors in communications. Mm -hmm. Uh, journalism, newspapers themselves not being sufficient, you're supposed to have some knowledge of electronic communications and so forth. When a, when a boy, or a girl for that matter, goes through school, 
all the way through college and then emerges into the workforce, they have learned how to look at the world. If they come out of the schools of communication, which are part of the liberal arts, they have been told that everything is explicable from a certain angle and they come out like so many lemmings. They don't have to investigate because they already know the story. Mm -hmm. Only thing, they, they view individuals as symbols of class and place, or race, or ethnicity, or religion. They didn't have to cover the religious witnesses at the hearing that you mentioned. I have that volume, by the way, and it's mm -hmm. very impressive. They didn't have to attend because they already felt that they knew yes. what those people were going to say. Well, as you know, I have for more than 10 years been uh, frequently a witness at church and state trials or for trials of parents and so on. And a lot of the reporters uh, who have appeared have been... Uh, pretty wretched and fit the description you've made, but some of them have been good men. And some have come back a second day to uh, express on one or two occasions their chagrin at the story that came out. And there is a reason behind that. When we were young, Otto, you would have two or three printings of a paper in a single day Nobody now is familiar with the idea of newsboys running around in the downtown area shouting extra, extra. But then you would have uh, several printings in a day with fresh news, on-the-spot reporting, a man calling it in and it go being taken immediately to the typesetter. Now what happens is that the... Uh, editor has all kinds of handouts given to him, let us say, by the State Department of Education or the State Welfare Department or whatever uh, agency is involved. The reporter calls in his story or takes it in. It goes to a rewrite man and very often there isn't a single thing that he turned in in the final story. Uh, one person told me of having his name on a story and he recognized two sentences of a two-page article. That's true. The editors have complete liberty to rewrite anything that you submit, even if you have a byline. Mm -hmm. uh, you are not allowed today to cover a story that has not been assigned to you and the editors decide what story is important and more and more, governmental activities and handouts comprise the bulk of the news. Yes. And next to that is the features, the comics, uh, the columns, uh, paste-ups, you might say, uh, the ladies' uh, fashions and so forth. The real estate section has always amused me. Talk about the freedom of the press. Have you ever looked at, with an objective eye at the editorial content of the real estate section? Every bit of it reads like an advertisement. Yes. And uh, it's absolute, total, total creature of the real estate interests and the developers and so forth. However, the, there is a reason for the government comprising most of the news because 
the government now is the largest entity in the land. Mm -hmm. And what really uh, is surprising is how little interpretation of the government's activities the people receive. They're not really told how it works. In Berkeley, for instance, here's, the, here's Berkeley, which has just destroyed housing. Mm -hmm. Next to Berkeley is San Francisco, which has two big newspapers. It has the Examiner and the Chronicle. They combine on their weekend edition, but they still presumably compete for five or six days of the week. I have never seen in any of them an analysis of the collapse of Berkeley right next no. door. That's right. Local coverage is the biggest gap in all the media throughout the country because local coverage would mean confronting the evils at hand with entrenched interests. The local power. Yes, the local power. New York Times. I shut up one of the writers of the New York Times one day when I said, you guys sat. You sat looking out the window at the foreign policy of the United States, at Israel, at Belfast, at Japan, and you wrote all these think pieces, and in the meantime, New York City turned into a swamp on your own doorstep, and you never covered it. But, of course, it would mean going against the powers, and that fits yes. in with the cowardice of journalism. I, I wish I could recite this from memory, but I can't. A famous incident when Napoleon escaped from Etna. The monitor, ah, yeah. the monitor, I believe it was, who said the monster has escaped the first day. And then the second day it said the adventurer, and it got progressively less stern until finally just before he reached Paris it said his majesty the emperor is at the gates yes that's a famous incident a good example of subservience well you mentioned San Francisco in the 30s there were four newspapers there and uh, now there are only two and both, uh, both, sorry. Both from the same viewpoint. Yes. There's no conflict between them, and there was a very uh, strong competitive spirit. At one time. Yes. Well, we have the television news. Now, about six months or so ago, an item came over on the TV news, evening news, to the effect that two men had been indicted for operating a, an illegal tax shelter. And I happened to know the tax shelter and all the people who were operating it. And I was quite intrigued to know which of the two out of the whole crowd was indicted. So I spent at least an hour, an hour and a half, turning on every news channel. And every one of them read the same item out in the same words, without naming the men. But what intrigued me was that the item was in the same words. Mm -hmm. And then since then I have several times checked on ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN, and I find the same, not only the same item being given on each one, but in the same sequence. Yes. Now they claim to be competing. I don't know whether they're competing in hairstyles or the appearance of the anchor lady who always looks admiringly at the anchor man or whatever. But the news is the same. Now, even Russia changes with its publications. 
they emphasize different things in, in Pravda and some of the other papers because they've learned the hard way that otherwise nobody will even look at them. Well, because of the present tax structure, the accountant or the accounting mentality has taken over one area after another. Uh, the accounting mentality began to take over in Detroit on Automobile Row after World War II. And it has taken over since then in the world of the newspapers. So that uh, the accountant has uh, created a, a media in which things like the real estate section are all important. And the volume of advertising, for example, in the Stockton Record is amazing. The paper comes out like that, very thick, a huge stack, mostly advertising. Well, I know they have food supplements, and then they have, uh, I notice advertisements now appear in the comic strip pages on Sunday, or in between mm -hmm. the comic strips on yes. Sunday. Uh, the comic strips have gotten political, you know, and some of them yes. are some of them are sexual and filled with innuendos. The uh, they're not funny, particularly. No, I read recently that uh, there is a world of difference between the comic strips favored by those over fifty and those under fifty. Hmm. And most editors are bewildered by the strips that are popular and uh, just throw up their hands in dismay. Is that so? Yes. <coughs> well, if we go on into the role of the press in terms of governmental activity, one of the things that happened uh, during World War II and after, as you recall, was the attempt by the government for a period to tie up the whole subject of physics because the atomic energy was supposed to be a secret. And for a while, they really did practically classify the whole uh, subject of physics. And then having uh, applied classification in peacetime for the first time in the history of the United States, you realize that before World War II, there was no governmental secrets. The secrets came in during wartime, but after wartime, the secrets were all released. Well, now, after World War II, the wartime classification of secrets never stopped because it moved into the Cold War. And since every bureaucrat had a classification stamp and the ability to, to use it, whole reaches of the American government's activity became classified to such an extent that by 1952, the... Uh, organization inside the League of Nations which over, over monitored the freedom of the press around the world. I don't know if it's still in existence or not, but it was one of the better elements of the, of the League of Nations. Took the United States off the free press list because it said by that time so much had been classified. The government of the United States was doing so many things that it wouldn't tell the people about that the people were no longer being given the information necessary by the press for a free country. Now, since then, efforts have been made to break that, but to break it from the left-wing point of view. Uh, the Pentagon Papers, for instance, were 
not really uh, valid secrets. What they were were records of discussions in the Pentagon of possible courses of action in Vietnam none of which were settled in the Pentagon. They were all settled by Lyndon Johnson and his predecessors and successors in the White House. Uh, the publication of the papers then was more of a publicity stunt than it was a violation of actual secrets of the United States government. But the fact is that they shouldn't have been classified in the first place. There was no particular point Technically speaking, we were not ever at war in Vietnam. If we had gone to war, then they would have had a right to censor and classify, and also Congress would have voted it up or down. Mm -hmm. But of course, this is part of what you've so often brought up, the evasion of reality. Congress didn't want to confront the reality of our policy in Vietnam, nor could anybody explain the policy, so therefore we got into this problem. So we have here a press that because of its predilection against the American tradition and its socialism is almost a mischievous adversary of the government but at the same time is part of the government in terms of influence because our Congress and our White House operate in conjunction and our, our judiciary operate in conjunction with an agenda that the press sets. This is a unique situation. I don't believe the world has ever seen it before. No, I think you're right. I think, uh, especially since uh, Reagan took office, you had increasingly government by the media, uh, partly because Reagan reacted so uh, strongly to anything the media said. It was as though he, he was reading uh, reviews by critics of his performance and uh, amending his ways in terms of what the reviewers said. Well, the staff certainly does. Yes. And you remember that Lyndon Johnson had three television sets in the Oval Office. Yes. Used to watch the nightly news every night. Mm -hmm. All three of them. I was interested uh, today to read about a lecture by a man who was head of a school in another state, a uh, state school, that uh, has no testing, uh, no requirements, no grades, nothing. The lecture he gave at the university uh, was reviewed extensively covered enthusiastically an ideal educational solution uh, set forth and the sad reflection that we do not have this as yet in our area. No. Now, this was a rave review, you might say. But let us suppose that uh, you had lectured on South Africa mm -hmm. I, or on uh, abolitionism the coverage you would have gotten would be highly negative and critical. In other words, it is no longer a reporting of news in either case, the one actual, the other hypothetical, but a review, an editorial review. And this is what is, what is wrong with the media today. 
Instead of reporting the news, it gives us an editorial perspective on it. Otto, as we continue, I'd like to hark back to uh, Douglas Grutheis's Confronting the New Age, in which he speaks of the New Age uh, thesis that everyone should create his own reality. I think, as Grutheis points out in this book, this is more than an organized movement. It has become the spirit of our age, and uh, people do believe they can create their own reality and live in terms of it. And the press lives under the illusion that the liberal world dream is the present and the future. And therefore, anything else is treated as though it were a fantasy. Well, there's a lot to that. Uh, there is the argument, and it's a popular one, and it has a certain element of truth to the effect that what people believe exists. Uh, in the sense, it does exist in the sense that people uh, are affected and influenced by what they think is real. And, of course, the absence of contradiction which the press enjoys creates this bubble in which the journalists live and shared by the politicians, the judges, and our ruling class. The ruling class, in other words, has, a, has our press. The media exists as part of the ruling combination. The people have been exiled from consideration by our governing class and its instruments. Now, now that may sound somewhat Marxist, but I don't really mean it in the same sense because I don't believe that they are aware of what they're doing. They have all been educated in the same schools to the same conclusions, and really the seedbed of this whole thing is in the university. The press takes its cue from the, media, from the university. The lecture that you just mentioned, for instance, uh, is a perfect example of that. They think they discern in that lecture the latest trend in educational channels, and they want to be uh, au courant. So therefore, they give it a rave review. And they hear all this business about apartheid, so they think the average American is going around muttering to himself over the injustices of apartheid. The average American doesn't know where South Africa is. Well, uh, this uh, creating your own reality, I can illustrate by something that uh, happened to me last year. It was in Houston, Texas, and I was lecturing. I gave a lecture on a subject that had no relationship to what the reporter came up and asked me about. He stopped me as I was leaving to say he wanted to ask a few questions. Would I mind taking the time? I've forgotten what I spoke on, but it was in no way related to what he had to say. He wanted to know whether I subscribe to the theory that uh, the Soviet Union was an evil empire. 
that foreign policy had to be dictated by moral considerations, and so on. He made a long statement. The gist of it was, do you view the world in terms of good and evil? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said it contemptuously. Oh. And uh, now I had not been discussing the Soviet Union or what it was doing in the world, not even remotely. But this was what he was interested in. I obviously belonged to that realm of uh, idiots who believe that there is such a thing as good and evil. And I just looked at him as though he were something that had crawled out from under a rock and he slunk away. But this is it. They have a view of reality that is decadent. So the press is a good example of decadence in the modern world because it has forsaken a moral perspective and God is going to judge it. Well, I wouldn't say they had forsaken a moral perspective entirely. Their moral perspective is different than the Christian perspective. They place relations between the races as the uh, summa cum laude of all human effort. And yet their efforts to improve that situation have resulted in a series of calamitous results. The road to hell is paved with good intentions, somebody said, and the press certainly proves it. By attempting to create a fantasy America, they have made the real America much worse than it's ever been. Well, let me qualify what I said uh, to buttress <laughs> what I said. They do believe that the world is beyond good and evil in any objective sense. Their values are uh, transitional temporary, do your own thing. Just as in our schools today, they boast of teaching values and having value education, but what they're teaching the students is you choose your own values. And therefore, you have a radical equalitarianism because all values in all people are the same. You cannot say one group of people here are morally superior. This church over here represents a higher moral level than uh, the people in the jail. They have to be equal. Now, it's that type of beyond good and evil uh, value well, in this that case, is advocated in which the press reflects. In this case, it's almost beneath good and evil. Uh, the press, though, has been given some unusual privileges here, which they have never enjoyed anywhere else. Mm -hmm. The Shield Law, for instance, enables a reporter to keep his sources secret. He can print some charge against you of an, a terrible nature and say that his sources are secret and he is protected by law from divulging those sources. Yes almost as though he were a minister or a priest who wouldn't divulge the secrets of the confessional, or a lawyer who is uh, not to be forced into revealing the secrets of a client. Now, the shield law, of course, enables a man to invent a story, to invent a charge, and I think it's unconstitutional on the face of it because we all have a right to face our 
accusers and to know precisely what they accuse us of so that we can defend ourselves. Now, that particular constitutional guarantee seems to have dropped out of sight. Congress doesn't know, never heard of such a thing because they're now using raw FBI files. Do you know what a raw FBI file is? Yes. It contains any allegation that anybody made without revealing the source. It's the same as the shield law, only the FBI has it. Now, they had three FBI investigations of former Senator Tower. Don't you suppose that when his enemies knew that the FBI was coming around for the second time that they thought of a few new things to say? Especially since they knew that they would be protected? Can't you imagine the third time around the size of that file? Because I understand that he had many personal enemies for many different reasons. Well, the press is in this position. The press is in an extra a position of extraterritorial authority, you might say. It can ruin you, and you have no legal recourse. It can elevate you for any reason that it chooses. It can take the most unsuitable individual and make him famous and keep him famous. I think I said before that People magazine doesn't even portray people. It portrays monsters of some sort. And it's almost as though the press really delights in putting it in our eye, in saying we're going to take the most obscene individual you've ever heard of and we're going to make him famous. And we're going to at the same time ignore true talent, real positions, actual work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had this discussion with uh, a journalist who was bureau chief for the Washington Post and the New York Times in Vietnam over Tet. And I can't think of his name offhand, but he's the one who wrote the big book about the Tet Offensive, Mm -hmm. in which later, later, much later, he sat down and investigated how the press handled the Tet Offensive in the Vietnam War and proved that they had misreported as a defeat one of our greatest military victories. But he said nobody intended it that way. We just happened to come out the same door by accident. And I said, well, the coverage that you guys gave our forces in Vietnam was consistently negative. How is that? He said, well, look at, uh, look at Chesty Westmoreland. He said he was a jock. He was a big, handsome guy, broad-shouldered, lots of ribbons and great stars on his shoulders. Then he said, look at the average journalist. He said, we, we weren't in the top of the class. We weren't jocks. We wore glasses. We weren't good with the girls. He said, we take a look at somebody like Chesty Westmoreland, and he said, you couldn't help but want to bring him down. And, and I was amazed that he said it. Mm-hmm. He was so unselfconscious about his dirty little envies. He didn't care at all what it did to the country. Yes. So we're really talking about ignorance in power. Mm-hmm. Sin in power. Same thing. Yes. Well, no, it isn't. Sin is worse. It is yes. sin in power. Yes. Yes. And it does not see itself as responsible to any higher power. None. That's the tragedy. Because, of course, it it is. Yes, there is no fear of God in their eyes, the Bible says. Right. 
Well, I think one of the things we can <clears throat> be grateful for is that <clears throat> in recent years an alternate press has arisen. Newsletters and uh, periodicals of uh, all kinds dealing with the political, the economic, and the religious scene. In fact, a major part of the reading of the American people today is becoming precisely this alternate media. Now just uh, think, for example, of the number of things you receive apart from the major media. Oh, a whole... I can't count them. <clears throat> yes. And uh, this is true of people across country. Well, we don't have... We've been blocked from the major platforms. Yes. Uh, there is no religious coverage. On Saturday, there's a little sort of smattering of a few religious articles. On Saturdays. Mm -hmm. uh, on one page in most of the metropolitan papers, maybe three articles. That's the great concession to tens of millions of people. Mm -hmm. And I wait for the day mm -hmm. when Christian multimillionaires, and we have them, will take the daring step of buying a newspaper or doing something with the radio and television stations that they already have beyond the Christian circle. Yes, one such man uh, bought an entire radio network and was so timid that all the Christians and conservatives got kicked out in no time at all. Oh, I know that. I know the network. Yes. I bought a book recently, or picked one up, called The Seven Deadly Sins, and I was interested in what a man might have to say. And the writer was a pastor, and all the examples came from his congregation and himself and the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, there's a big world here that you're ignoring. Mm -hmm. It's a very small, slender book, and I thought I would think the seven deadly <laughs> sins would go for an encyclopedia size anyway. <laughs> well, maybe he and his congregation are exceptionally holy. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to break out of this community group thinking. We have to look at the larger world. Yeah. There is, there has been a tremendous advance where church bulletins before were only on the church meetings, mm -hmm. and now we have church publications that discuss abortion across the country and what's yes. being done about it, and many other issues. You're quite right That's about that. Ten, fifteen years ago, some uh, churches and ministerial associations would forbid any discussion of abortion. It was regarded as a social gospel. Now, it's increasingly rare to find any such uh, groups because uh, events are pushing them into the arena. They've got to fight. Okay, what has happened here somewhere along the line is that the Christian community erected what amounted to intellectual monasteries, nunneries, yes. and retreats. Mm -hmm. and we have to get out of that. That's why I said a newspaper, and also the radio and television stations have to start competing on world coverage in 
extra Christian areas as well as the Christian. Mm -hmm. After all, we are surrounded by tens of millions of people. And I would say that charity is something that is not restricted to food and shelter and clothing and money. Charity means helping people out of a bog of ignorance. Helping their lives in a larger sense is a charitable undertaking, which is our duty. Mm -hmm. Instruction, education, information, all of this comes under the heading, I think, of charity. Mm -hmm. A number of other things are happening besides this alternate press. All the newsletters and periodicals and publications. You have... uh, Video cassettes. Yes. They're a wonderful instrument. Yes. And uh, some of the people who are not even noticed by the press mm-hmm. are getting tens of thousands of video cassettes sold from coast to coast, mm-hmm. and these circulating from hand to hand to promote a particular bit of information. Then you have uh, cassettes. And... Uh, it's becoming increasingly commonplace for commuters in cities to listen to cassettes. Well, this is a cassette. Yes. And there will be a lot of people listening, uh, driving to and from work. Uh, then uh, you have uh, the fact that some people are now using uh, videotapes to duplicate newsletters so that they're switching from the newsletter format to an exclusively uh, cassette format or video cassette because they find that so many people uh, will listen who will not read. So, in a variety of ways, uh, information is getting out such as has never been the case before. Well, it's an end run around the media. Yes. Because most Americans hold the media in utmost contempt. They actually hate the journalists, both on television and in print. The journalists are blissfully unaware of this. Well, you were at the uh, monetary conference last week to speak. Yes. And uh, you remarked when you came back about the fact that it was not only professors and economists this time. There were many men in investments, in banking, and so on. And all these men were aware of the basic issues. And I am sure that they've gotten it from the economic reports and newsletters. No question. So that you have... They certainly don't get it from the press. Oh, no. I mean, Uh, you know television news gives business a once-over lightly, not even that much. Well, just the Christian men who are producing economic reports and are on our mailing list is a considerable one. Oh, yes. And... uh, This is just one aspect of a vast field now so that the United States is being economically educated apart from the established media. 
religiously educated, politically educated, in one sphere after another, is receiving a separate kind of training. And now things have been happening in recent years in other spheres as well. It's interesting to see the changing taste in art. Art periodicals are a beginning to shift from the avant-garde garbage to a more uh, traditional concept of art. And I think what you have noted about the Cowboy Museum of Art and the art sales there is worth uh, commenting about. It's so important. Well, that was several years back in the uh, Cowboy Museum in Tulsa, in uh, Oklahoma City. Uh, once or twice a year they have an auction of representational art by artists who are drawing mountains and snowscapes and cowboys and cattle and trees and so forth. And incidentally, wonderfully technically done. Mm -hmm. And there was a collection of different paintings in different parts of the museum, and a bunch of very well dressed people attended the auction. And there was in each, in front of each group of paintings, was a man in a business suit, with whom I at first thought was the artist, but it wasn't, it was the agent. Mm -hmm. And they would bid, the people would bid for these paintings, and they went into the tens of thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. There was an enormous amount of art sold, several million dollars worth, in a few hours. Now, the New York galleries don't do this. No, and your avant-garde art has a market only with corporations who are trying to please the avant-garde and with some of the uh, avant-garde museums. Well, yes, the corporation only listens to professors. The professors only listen to the avant-garde. It's another closed little circle. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when it comes to matters intellectual or cultural, uh, businessmen are timid, and they want to go by what has been certified respectable. They wouldn't dream of using their own ideas or their own opinions. Yes. It's too bad. Well, there's still another area of the media that we haven't uh, covered. The computer. Computer networks are beginning to appear. And... Uh, the result is that people are passing information back and forth across country, reporting on local happenings of interest to the kind of audience they have. So you have uh, the beginnings of a very important network there. Well, all of this takes more time than people realize. Mm -hmm. uh, I discovered when I was an editor, and it was in some ways dispiriting, that it would take several years for a seminal article to really take effect in the audience. I was astonished at how long it took. And yet, it sank deep and it would emerge as an important issue. Yes. Now, these various changes, the newsletters, the computers, the fax machines, and the cassettes, audio and video, have just really hit, they've just really emerged yes. in the last few years. It's going to take ten or more years, I think, for the full impact to occur. But uh, it's going to be tremendous. I think in time the fax machine will be as common in households as the telephone. Oh, I'm sure of it. And it will create a revolution 
in the sphere of information. I think we are on the brink of a major revolution that is going to leave the existing press high and dry unless they change their ways. Well, like cable is leaving the networks. Mm -hmm. The networks are getting more and more desperate. Less and less people are looking at them. Who, who can stand to have 15 ads in order to have 12 seconds of program? Well, um, the newspapers have decreased in number, and I think they will continue to decrease unless they mend their ways. I know that uh, it was rare to find a family that did not subscribe to at least one newspaper in the 20s and 30s. Oh, yes. I mean, Daddy had to have an evening newspaper, yes. that was for sure. Now, um, a great many families don't bother with a newspaper, might look at the television news, but are more and more indifferent to the established media. Well, you have to wade through an awful lot of uh, feature stuff, and the news is doctored. Mm -hmm. All the news that's fit to print really means all the news we want you to know. Yes. Well, our time is about up. Uh, let's hope about 10 or 15 years from now, Otto, we can do a similar one and report on the revolution that has taken place and how Christians are at the heart of it. Well, I'll say to you what Churchill said to the young painter who said he hoped he could do it again in ten years or so. Churchill said, well, why not? You look pretty healthy. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.